Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hello everybody. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Hang on to your hats. We're going to talk about esoteric and exoteric spirituality in this episode. Why? Because they're cool. But also because, I don't know, these are Greek terms that uh, can be sometimes confusing. And so I'm going to talk about the differences. And not that I'm, I'm not here to prescribe anything to anybody as somebody who practices esoteric spirituality myself, I'm not saying that's the right path for you. Do what you will. But if you have some information, you can make some informed choices, right? So let's talk about the difference. First of all, when I'm talking about esoteric, that is spelled E-S, and when I'm talking exoteric, that's spelled E-X. They are Greek words, basically meaning inner teachings. Eso meaning inner, and exo meaning outer. So things that are exotic or foreign or outside of our experience, things that are, um, you know, exoplanets or planets outside of our solar system and etc. You get the picture. So generally speaking in spirituality, and some I'm going to talk a little bit about organized religion just because some of the easiest examples to understand come from organized religion. However, I do understand that there's a large, the in fact, the largest growing population in the U.S. and many other countries is people who identify as spiritual but not religious, people who aren't practicing organized religion but are still spiritual. And um, wherever you find yourself, that's totally fine. But sometimes it's just easier to point out some examples this way. But I'll also talk about... I'll talk about what it might mean if you are spiritual but not religious. So generally speaking historically anyway, when we're talking about exoteric spirituality, we're talking about um, a church or, you know, an organized religion. What are their outer teachings? What are the things that they're teaching to the masses? What are their practices, right? So if you were Catholic, for example, you would go to mass. You would practice mass. You would um, do you know, take communion, you would uh, do confession, you would do all of these things, part of the exoteric, part of everyday church spiritual life. Exoteric with an X. Now, one might think there aren't hidden teachings in Christianity. There's no esoteric Christianity, but that is not true at all. Um, there are lots of forms of esoteric 
In fact, in, in all of the major religions of the world, not just the Western ones, but in all of the major religions of the world, you find both exoteric and esoteric practices. So there are lots of Christian orders. There's some Catholic orders that have hidden inner teachings and inner practices. You find um, mystics, and I'm going to talk about mysticism. Mysticism isn't always esoteric from an organized religion perspective, but those things do kind of go hand in hand. So one of the... um, you know, one of the characteristics, we'll talk about some common characteristics. Now, common doesn't mean universal, right? So if I say that esoteric practice usually involves some sort of initiation, initiatory practice, you say, well, you know, the, you know, the Sufi school in, and I don't know that this is true or not, but the Sufi school in Islam doesn't have initiation. Like I said, it's common, it's not universal, Sufis are do have esoteric practices, right? That is an esoteric form of Islam. In Judaism, you have the practices practices and teachings associated with Kabbalah. And I know there are, now there's a lot of that out in the public. A lot of stuff that was esoteric hidden away in a cult, and I'll talk about the word occult as well, is <laughs> in this age of information is available, is out there. You can, you know, take online courses in Kabbalah. Now that it was unheard of until very recently. You, The only way to learn would be to learn one-on-one from a teacher. In fact, the word, um, uh, my understanding of the word Kabbalah in from in Hebrew comes from the word like to to whisper or to babble, meaning like it's word, word mouth to ear kind of teaching. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of um, an esoteric teaching, hidden stuff because not a lot was written down, and so there are a lot of esoteric traditions that died out. Um because they were either repressed or they just didn't have enough people to pass teachings on to. So in um, pagan Rome, for example, during around the time that, you know, just prior to the time that Christianity formed, you know, so a couple hundred years BC to a few hundred years AD, there was the cult of Mithras and um, Mithraic religion, and we don't know very much about it because they didn't write it down. But what we do know is that there were Mithraic temples which were underground, literally underground, hidden, secret. We knew there were initiatory practices. Um, there were at least three levels of initiation. Um. I believe it was mostly open to men, but there may have been Mithraic uh, temples that accepted women as well. There were feasts involved and rituals, and so it was very. It was an esoteric. There were a lot of esoteric cults and 
the cult of Mithras was popular and seen actually as um, competition for Christianity during the time because it was ongoing. And because of the number of myth, um, Mithraic temples found and found everywhere, found U- the UK, Europe, and um, lots of these have been dug up by archaeologists. They can postulate that it was really popular and that it was particularly popular with military people because they were located near um, where the Roman military was stationed. So not really as much near sort of civilian populations. So popular with military people and, you know, involved the worship of Mithras and Saul. And, you know, they know a few things just because of the the artwork found inside these Mithraic temples. But the actual practices are have been difficult to decipher so far because they didn't write anything down. So very typically, esoteric practices are not written down. Again, not universal, common, right? Because you can find books of Kabbalah that are quite that are old, not ancient, because the first ones written were um, written in, I think, in the Middle Ages. So we don't have ancient Kabbalistic scrolls that I'm aware of. And the Middle Ages might seem old. Seems old to me, but in the scope of humanity, not that old. So some things that are common in esoteric practices. One, there, um, there's usually a selection process or initiation, which has to do with the person passing the tradition on determining if the candidate is worthy or ready to receive the teachings. So we see this with um, things like Freemasonry, right? Freemasonry is ostensibly Christian. And um, esoteric and hidden, you have to be initiated into the practice. You have to be, you know, voted in and selected. And... Um, although many, many, many books have been written about Freemasonry and outlining the rituals, and there have been videos done showing the rituals and things like that, um, it's actually part of the oaths that you swear never to write anything down. And that would reveal the secrets. But again... In this information age, everything is available, pretty much. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are lots of things out there that are are um, not available. There are still probably oral traditions out there um, that haven't been written down. But there are a lot of things in the, in the Western world, in particular. We are fond of writing and printing things and putting things on the internet. So there may be this idea that esoteric practice is better or higher level or going to give you spiritual power. 
et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, um, I'm not going to be disingenuous and say none of that is true. It's all the same. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be, you know, seeking out esoteric practices to gain power or that sort of thing is sort of the wrong motivation, right? Um, first of all, any, any initiation, any real initiation, any real spiritual initiation is going to be um, a minor death of sorts, meaning you're going to have to give up some old ways of thinking, of doing things, whatever. So it's not for everyone. Right? Um, I mean, even in exoteric practices, right, if you were to join church that you hadn't belonged to before, they might have a certain code of conduct. If you converted, <clears throat> pardon me, if you converted to Judaism, you converted to Islam, you would have to give up, you know, if you hadn't been living that way, you would have to give up some ways of living, for example, and decide that that, whether that worked for you or not. If you joined certain religious orders, you might be expected to be celibate, for example, Though I'm not sure how that works out in reality, I don't. I don't know that there's a whole lot of that. Um, there's a whole lot of celibate orders that seem to have a lot of sexual abuse and and stuff like that. So, anyway, um, being initiated into some sort of uh, order or whatever, you know, puts a lot of expectation on you. It's an obligation. It's an, you know, frequently you're taking oaths. And in my take, um, oaths should never be taken lightly, particularly spiritual oaths, right? It is a contract of sorts, but it's a contract. It's not like a contract with the devil. You're not selling your soul to the devil, but it's a karmic contract saying, I'm going to live out these certain principles. I'm going to do these certain things. And if you don't, sometimes there are karmic repercussions for that. You know, sometimes the universe is like, oh, well, I'm going to show you that you entered into something which was presented to you as life and death serious, and you did not take it life and death seriously. And so here's an important lesson for you to learn. So, you know, don't go into esoteric spirituality lightly, particularly anything that's organized. So there's there's also, just like with any form of spirituality, there's organized esoteric spirituality, right? You can join the Freemasons. You can join, um, you know, certain orders, monastic orders and all kinds of things. You can receive initiations. Um, you can receive transmissions. You can, in, in, um, in Eastern religions, so Hinduism, Buddhism, things like that, there are, now there, you can get all kinds of transmissions from gurus, right? You can, um, you know, things that used to only be open to monks. You can get all kinds of transmissions. Um, 
but you, you know, so for, if you're a, you know, if you're Buddhist, you want to go receive the, um, you know, some transmission of some Tibetan deity or something, you have to have taken certain vows, certain, you know, taken the, the vows of refuge, for example, that's an expectation. And, you know, you're not to say like lightning is going to strike you down or something, but you're not going to get what you're after by just going and getting a transmission if you're not taking it seriously. So that's another aspect of esoteric practice. It takes to get anything out of it takes a significant amount of dedication practice and, and faith for lack of a better term, right? If you just, you know, let's say take the refuge vows in Buddhism, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha, I take refuge in the Buddha, um, and you just like throw that out there and you don't really mean it, well, none of the other stuff you do is going to do anything for you. It makes no sense unless you're serious about that, unless you align yourself to that. So there's an alignment in esoteric practice as well. So there's organized esoteric practice, and then there is sort of mysticism. And mysticism is about more solitary. There are mystical orders, but mystical work is usually solitary because it is about individual absorption, identification with the divine. And you have mystics in every form of spirituality. So when I um, I read something, um, an interview with somebody who is a Sufi dancer, if you've seen what they call the, I don't know if this term is used or not, but the whirling dervishes, right? The, the Sufi dancers that spin in circles. It's really beautiful, actually, to watch. They wear these... Um, outfits and they spin around and you can tell they're entering a state, an ecstatic state. And this is another Greek term, ecstasis, or I don't know how you'd pronounce it in Greek, but ecstasis, where we get the word ecstasy from. And ecstasy, not just talking about the way that we normally use it in English to refer to like sexual ecstasy, but meaning entering this altered state where the personality sort of dissolves. But I was reading this um, interview when somebody asked about, you know, the Sufi dancer, what it was like. And his experience of doing that whirling was like he was being held and spun by angels that were in the room. So he was no longer doing it, that the spirit was doing the motion for him was moving him. Um, which to me, as a shamanic practitioner, somebody who teaches and practices shamanism, we have very similar practices in shamanism where we merge with helping spirits and dance, or merge with helping spirits and move, or merge with helping spirits and channel and talk and that sort of thing. So it's like we allow the body to become a vessel. And there's an expression in shamanism called becoming the hollow bone. 
if you think about a bone that is hollow, it's, you know, it's cleared out of any junk that might be in the middle and it becomes a clear channel for spirit to move through. And that's, you know, that's what shamans strive to become, strive to become the hollow bone. We do our self-work to clear out the junk that prevents us. And the junk is basically shadow material, ego material, all kinds of stuff. So there are mystical aspects in every form of spirituality as well. So um, shamanism, for example, is mystical because it does involve you know, the merging of the ego or the identity, not the ego, but the merging of the identity with the divine sometimes. And it's also esoteric because there are practices that are only available to people who are kind of initiated. Although I've certainly, I've read things, um, I've read things in books about shamanism that I think I sort of wish... Uh, <laughs> I wish people hadn't written down. So there's some really, really advanced practices that some people have written out. And my concern, not that, you know, we need to hold things back from people like that, but um, people will practice stuff that they're not ready for yet. And two things can happen when we do this. So, you know, like right now you can go... Uh, online and download a book on evoking demons, <laughs> right? And I can't tell you whether that's a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. But historically, if you were going to do something like that, you would have gone through years of apprenticeship with, you know, some teacher. And you had done all kinds of work, prayers and meditations and preparation for that work. Now people are like, just let me get to the demons. <laughs> no personal preparation, no personal work. So the same thing is true with shamanism. You have to do your own work. You have to work to become that hollow bone. And then you get to the esoteric practices, which, so the the challenge is that, A, if you haven't done your personal work, this stuff is not going to work for you at all. Right? It's sort of like I want to run I want to run a marathon. Um but I'm not going to train for it. I'm just gonna go out and run a marathon tomorrow. One of two things can happen here. Um A I will fail miserably. That will that will definitely happen. But two, um depending on how hard I try, I might actually hurt myself. And that's a definite possibility as well. So it's the same thing with esoteric practices. Um, there's usually a building up. There's usually, which is why a lot of, um, a lot of initiatory systems like Freemasonry and, and some others, um, although a lot of the esoteric teaching in my experience, has been removed from Freemasonry. Like, there's a lot of stuff, talks about symbols and things like that. But um, 
there's not a lot of practical teaching in Masonic lodges. Um, but we'll, we'll take something like um, the Golden Dawn. If you're not familiar, the Golden Dawn was a uh, magical body, a Christian magical body, not overtly Christian, not like a church, but um, based in, on Judeo-Christian stuff and loosely based on Freemasonry. And they had a, you know, there there are the original body closed, but there are now organizations teaching their systems of magic. So it's very esoteric and it's initiatory. And while you could go and download their entire corpus of material and try to try to practice some of the advanced stuff they're really caught they're like you have to go through you know at level one or whatever it's called you've got to go through a year of training where you do work every single day preparatory work you do meditations you do rituals you have to you know learn the hebrew alphabet you have to learn um all of this stuff before you initiate to the next level. And then there's a bunch of stuff before you initiate to the next level. But you could right now go online, probably download the highest level of golden dawn ritual and attempt to do some of the ritual and it won't work for you. Why? Because you haven't done any of the preparatory work. You're going out and trying to run a marathon and you haven't trained for it and you might hurt yourself spiritually, physically, mentally. And there are, um, there are cases that I've seen of, um, people, um, you know, people going, there's talk about like kundalini sickness where people raise the kundalini in their body without um, without proper preparation and essentially going insane. Right. And I don't, I don't know the truth of that, but I have seen, I've experienced people who were practicing things they should not have been practicing and winding up in rough shape mentally. They're opening doors without the, muscular strength. Like if I went and I tried to bench press 500 pounds today and I had somebody help me lift, you know, a couple of people help me lift the weight off the rack and then let go of it, I would hurt myself. would probably kill myself. I don't know. 500 pound bar coming crashing down in the center of my chest. Probably hurt myself. But people don't think about that stuff spiritually. Like, yeah, I can do anything. It's just spirituality. But here's the thing. You have an energy body that closely matches your physical body. This is what acupuncturists and energy healers work on. And there's some shamanic practices that work at the level of your energy body. And, you know, it has um, pathways, some, you know, called channels, Again, acupuncture works on these channels, meridians, whatever you want to call them, recognized by a lot of esoteric systems. You have an energetic anatomy. You can overload that if you're not prepared. 
which is why systems of yoga are tend to be gradual. Because there's a tremendous amount of preparatory work you have to, you know, prepare your energy system. Now people in the West, um, a lot of a lot of people think of yoga as uh, just the physical exercise part, right? And you can go to yoga studios everywhere and get a workout. But that's not the intent of yoga. Yes, it works the body. Absolutely, you can get in fantastic shape by practicing hatha yoga or whatever. But yoga is a spiritual practice, and the physical exercises, the the asanas, are only one branch of many, right? And you might practice some pranayama, which is the breathing part. You might meditate. There's also bhakti yoga and karma yoga, and um, there's so many different kinds of yoga that don't, necessarily involve just the physical postures. And I'm not an expert in yoga, so I don't want to speak too much about it, but, um, you know, there is a gradual preparation of the energy body, the higher spiritual centers, to be able to handle the amount of power that will flow through during higher-level practices, Um, you know, Qigong is like that as well. So Taoist, they're Taoist yoga, right? Even though, you know, yoga is not a a Taoist term, but to put a Western spin on it, I guess. Um, In Taoism, there are lots of physical exercises to work the energy body, to prepare the energy body, to make it more resilient, to move things around. Um, and you can go. You can go to a Tai Chi class. You can go to a Qigong class. You're not going to learn the highest level practices right away. Why? Because one of those two things will happen. One, it's not going to work for you. It's just not. You're just not prepared. You just don't have the capacity to generate that much energy or to handle it. And two, you could wind up hurting yourself, right? It's like I go to, um, you know, I trained in martial arts for, for decades and decades since I was about five years old, five or six anyway, um, trained in martial arts for a really long time and, um, you know, train on my own now these days. I used to teach. Um, and it's like people would People would show up to class, you know, for the first time and expect to be Bruce Lee or expect to, you know, show me the most advanced techniques. I just want to learn, you know, techniques. I'm like, you can't even make a proper fist yet. You know, you can't get out of the way of a punch. Nobody's going to teach you, you know, vibrating palm strikes that can cause internal organs to explode even if i had the inkling to teach that to you and i don't there's there's things that i refuse to teach some of the internal um 
internal techniques that I learned, I w- refused to pass on because there was no need for them. They were too, um, <laughs> were not self-defense at that point. You know, hitting somebody and causing an organ to fail seven days later, um, which believe me is a real thing. Um, that's not self-defense. And so I found no need to ever pass that on to any students. Um, but even, you know, people wanted to, you know, teach me the death touch, teach me this, teach me that. I'm like, look, if you just, you know, if you just want to hurt people, go pick up a toaster and hit somebody over the head with it. But here to train your body, mind, and spirit. And yes, the techniques that I'm going to teach you can be used in self-defense. But you got to train, you know. And I would, it, it would, sometimes it was disheartening. I would um, teach a movement, for example, some small technique and say, okay, go, you know, go practice this technique and send people off. And I'd go work with a student and I'd look and I'd see a bunch of students standing around and talking in the class, um, which is a big no no in martial arts studios, you don't stand around and chat. So I'd go over, I'm like, what are you guys doing? And like, oh, we're waiting for the next thing. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, we did this. I'm like, well, how many times? Well, we practiced it once. They're like, what's the next thing? <laughs> I'm like, well, you practice this movement for the next 10 years until you understand it. Most people don't have the patience for that. And that's fine. Understandably, we live in a world of instant gratification of everything available at our fingertips on the internet. But if that's not the kind of preparatory work you're trying to do, or you're willing to do, or you're capable of, then esoteric practices of any kind, be they martial arts or yogic or spirituality is probably not for you. Esoteric spirituality does not impart super, you know, instant superhuman abilities on you. In fact, spiritual powers, siddhas in um, Sanskrit, you know, people I've, I've experienced people doing things that would be considered supernatural. Um, you know, and it's only for the fact that there were many other people witnessing the same thing that I witnessed at the same time that I didn't think I was, <laughs> had been drugged or hallucinating or whatever. Um, I witnessed some things that were fairly supernatural, but people who are awakened will tell you that those powers are a bit of a trap along the pathway, along the pathway to awakening. Why? Because people get fat, they get attached to those abilities. So, there's a spiritual teacher I never got to meet in person, but who I've, you know, I've followed his teachings and through his student who teaches them, 
um, his name, or actually a couple of his students, his name is Lester Levinson, founder of the Sedona Method. I, Sedona Method, I highly recommend for anybody. You can pick up the book, you can take a course, you can, um, the book is really cheap on Amazon. Um, life-changing stuff, um, really, really good stuff. And not, um, it's presented in a very much not, no spiritual baggage to it, right? Like I, I took some courses with them. I went to um, New York and there was a rabbi in the course, for example. So it's not religiously based or anything like that. Um, but according to his students, people say with him, um, Lester developed, Lester Levinson, the person who found this, he developed a lot of abilities along his path as he was awakening, like stuff would just happen where he could, um, he could manifest stuff kind of at will. And he realized that that was a trap. Like he could, you know, spend the rest of his life just fascinated by manifesting things. Right. He could become attached to that. And the Buddha teaches us that attachment is the source of suffering. And so what he did was he actually gave up his abilities. Like you can you can do that. You know, somebody who can levitate or, uh, you know, shapeshift or, you know, whatever. Let's say somebody has that ability. They can just decide to give that up. Okay, I'm done with that. And it goes away. And the person, when they do that, they go deeper into source, deeper into reality, deeper into... And the description of that deepness is um, bliss, right? There's, um, you know, the Sanskrit word ananda, which is bliss, but it's like perfect bliss, There's a, um, not to go too far afield here, but um, there's a Japanese deity called Fudomyu, who is the unmovable one. And statues of him have him, he's, you know, sitting and he has, he looks kind of fierce and he's holding a club. And the idea is to have this imperturbability, right? To have a mind that, is completely undisturbed by what's going on. Now, there is a lesson there, right? There's a lesson in divine consciousness that it holds everything without being disturbed by it. And I'll give you, I will give you a secret here. It's not a secret. <laughs> A secret technique. One very powerful form of meditation is to sit and allow everything that's going on just to be exactly as it is. To have no preference. So if I sit and I look out the window and I see some garbage on the ground, that's fine. 
It's just an appearance that's showing up in my consciousness. I have no preference. I have no attachment to it. I don't care if it stays that way or if it changes. But it's a practice of imperturbability. And that is one way of approaching the divine mind, right? Approaching the the universal consciousness. Universal consciousness holds everything but is unchanging. And ultimately, this is what esoteric practice is aiming at most forms of esoteric practice, most genuine forms of esoteric spirituality are gearing people up for, you know, realization of universal consciousness, you might call it absorption into deity or, you know, oneness with God or whatever, whatever terminology it is, enlightenment, awakening, But a lot of people, so A, a lot of people aren't ready for that. It's a complete, it's a complete paradigm shift, right? And I don't use that term in a pop culture way. Your paradigm is your collection of beliefs about everything, about reality. And it doesn't matter what that is, it's going to shift tremendously. So if your whole idea of reality breaks down, are you prepared for that? And then the other, the other question is, um, are you going into esoteric practice for the wrong reasons? This is not um, judgment. You're wrong, you're right. But um, it's more like the reasons you're going into esoteric practice, are they going to lead you to seek out the thing that is intended to be produced by those practices or are they going to lead you to fail? So if I'm like, well, um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to use an extreme and silly example here. Um, you know, let's say back in my, back in my single, this was never a thing for me, but back in my single days, if I said, uh, I'm going to practice esoteric yoga because it'll make me more attractive to the ladies. Well, that's dumb because it's not intended to do that. That's the wrong reason. Not that I'm judging the motivation to be more attractive to the ladies to be wrong, morally wrong or whatever. It's wrong because it's not going to do that for me. It's not the intention. It might, uh, who knows, it might have that ability to some extent, but um, if I want to be more attractive to the ladies, I'm going to, you know, go work out and pick out better cologne. <laughs> it's much easier than spending 20 years of my life in meditation or or whatever. So if the reason is, uh, you know, just curiosity, intellectual curiosity, you know, that'll get satisfied. Maybe, maybe it'll get satisfied or maybe like that's it. 
<laughs> I can remember many, many years ago, a very young adult. Um, I was excited. Like I got initiated into a secret order of some kind. It's like, cool. I'm going to learn the, you know, I'm going to learn the secret word and blah, 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 you know, secret password and all this stuff. And, um, went through the initiation process and they're like, this is the secret word. And they told it to me. I was like, that's it. That was literally my response. That's it. And, you know, looking back on that, I was like, oh, I was a silly young man. And I was only like, I was after sort of the, the, the outer aspects of the esoteric Right. What's can I do? I have a do I have a secret that other people do, will I feel special? There's a certain amount of I need to feel specialness going on there. I get that. We all want to feel special and unique and like an insider and part of the club and all of those things. You know, and there are ways to do that that are, you know, that are non, that are non-spiritual as well. You know, um, join a civic organization, run for local office, join a club of some kind. But I think what I'm saying is esoteric spirituality is not easy. It's not an easy path to anything. It's not a shortcut. It may be the only pathway to certain things, but that doesn't make it easy, right? If the only pathway to the top of a mountain is a, you know, 600-foot sheer cliff, that doesn't make that cliff easy to easier to climb. It just makes it the only way to get to the top of the mountain. Having a little sip of coffee here. <sighs> coffee is a tool for higher consciousness. Um, I realize not coffee is not everybody's bag, but I do enjoy my coffee. Um, so let's talk about the word occult a little bit. So the word occult literally means hidden. And so by definition, all occult practices are esoteric, meaning they're not given out to the general populace. They are hidden. However, not Not all esoteric practices would necessarily be considered occult. For example, generally speaking, um, if you are practicing, you know, historically anyway, not today, but historically, if you were practicing things that were considered occult, you would be doing it in secret because it was very risky. You could be, well, you could be executed tortured to death, executed, you know, in a lot of places, no matter what you were doing, you, um, you know, 
certainly up until very recent history could be burned at the stake or tortured or thrown in prison for practicing, you know, consorting with spirits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so occult practices are all esoteric in that they are inner teachings. Frequently there are initiations in occult practices. However, there are a lot of people who practice occult things uh, solo because historically they have been, uh, it was dangerous to practice with other people, although they would, you know, certain people would take on apprentices or whatever. Um, and, you know, there are rich, very rich occult histories behind, behind a lot of things today. The founding of the United States of America, um, the founding fathers were predominantly Freemasons. There are a lot of occult spiritual ideas hidden in the symbology and words and practices and things like that. Now there is, um, amongst many, even today, this idea that, uh, occult practices are devil are always devil worship or whatever. And that's just not true. There's a lot of Christian occultism. Um, one figure to look at historically is Dr. John D. He was the court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth the first. Um, so back in the Elizabethan days, he was an astrologer, an alchemist, a mathematician. He was a cryptographer, meaning he he wrote codes. He acted as a spy for Queen Elizabeth. He was a, a close confidant. And he was uh, performing rituals um, ostensibly. So his idea, a lot of his ideas actually led to the what the modern world, basically. Many things we have in the modern world. Um, he coined the term the British Empire, for better or for worse. You know, we won't talk about imperialism too much, but... Um, you know, basically creating uh, the, you know, setting England up as a superpower. It was not a very powerful country for, you know, for all of its history. Um, He was working supposedly with angels um, in order to bring about the apocalypse, the end, you know, the end times, very apocalyptic. Um, but he was a, you know, obviously he was practicing in secret and people didn't know about what he was doing until his diaries were discovered many years after his death. He was working with a scryer. Also, you know, it's interesting. You can look at him from lots of different perspectives. Um, this great book by Jason Louvre called, um, John D and the empire of angels. Very thick book. Um, very well-researched, well-written. Um, Jason Louvre's a really great author. Um, but anyway, he talks about, you know, in this book he talks about how a lot of our modern ideas um, come directly from this one guy who was devoutly, devoutly Christian, practicing occult practices. And so the Order of the Golden Dawn, again, 
you know, very Christian, um, Kabbalah, very um, Judaic, I guess, you know, very Jewish, um, esoteric practices, Sufism, um, very Islamic. So, although these are esoteric, there are, you know, occult practices mixed into them. There's magic, basically. And D was not out to, you know, um, perform magic, like to manifest a castle for himself or, you know, whatever. He was really trying to, he was trying to communicate with, um, communicate with angels to bring about heaven on earth, which was basically the apocalypse, you know, the end times, but he wanted to set up, um, set England up as the ruler of the entire world with Queen Elizabeth I as its head, as the empress of the entire world. And he thought that's what um, God wanted him to do. And I'm not sure the in his diaries, he took meticulous notes in his diaries. The angels never told him that was what he was supposed to do. But that's what he he thought he was supposed to do. So there's some controversy about it because of the the person that he was working with at the time was, you know, not always the most scrupulous person. Um, this guy Edward Kelly, which might not have been his real name, but he had been in trouble for um, confidence games before. But these guys. Um, worked together for something like seven or nine years, basically every day performing complex rituals to contact these angels um, to the point where they were both seeing and hearing them. Now we could argue whether they were hallucinating, whether he was being conned, whether whatever, 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 but there is um, a complex series of works based on their findings that have influenced a lot of things in in what we consider modern thought. So one cannot, um, you can't deny the influence. You might not be aware of it. Um, it's not like his name is on everything. Um, but uh, yeah, he was... Um, an alchemist, an astrologer, a scientist, highly educated. He had more books um, in his collection. Books were books were very hard to come by in those days, as one might imagine. Very, very expensive things. And he had more books in his collection than the libraries of um, Cambridge and Oxford combined. They each had a couple hundred books. In their collection, he had several thousand books in his collection. So imagine, you know, imagine having more, owning more physical books than Harvard and Yale combined. I'll give you some idea of how learned this man was. He was a polymath. He, you know, knew several languages. He studied, he knew... So at that time, of course, there was only so much, quote-unquote, science that you could know, right? Science and mathematics and stuff. 
you know, Isaac Newton hadn't come along and, and whatever else. He basically knew all of the science there was to know in the Western world at that time. All He had studied all of the math. And astronomy and astrology were basically the same thing at that time. Um, all the math, all the physical science, all that stuff. Smart, smart dude, true Renaissance man. And, by the way, he would sign his letters to Queen Elizabeth in code, and the code was double O, looked like a 007, and that's where Ian Fleming got the the code for James Bond in his books. So, really cool dude. Uh, read about on him if you get a chance. If you're into reading historic stuff, um, check out Jason Louv's John D and the Empire of Angels. It's a good read. I have not completed it yet, I will have to admit, but the beginning parts are, are quite fascinating. And I think the end parts, he goes on to talk about some of the um, more modern people that he influenced, such as um, Jack Parsons, who founded Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So there's a real mix of science and spirituality in those days. They were not separate things. They were intimately linked Somewhere along the line, we decided that science proved that spirituality isn't real and spirituality denies science, but I don't think that has to be the case or true. Anyway, um, I hope that is a little bit enlightening on some of the differences between exoteric and esoteric practices. And if you're considering esotericism in any way, um, you know, just be aware of what you're getting into and go into it for, you know, if you go into it for the right reasons and you have the, you know, you, the understanding that things take time and initiations change paradigms and you won't be the same, then you'll be okay. With that, I'll leave you for today. I hope you're happy and healthy and I will talk to you real soon. been listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com.